0: Church, if you take your Bible this morning, open it up to the Book of Jude. You could almost go to the Book of Revelation and just turn a little bit to the left. There's an ancient debate that really began in the fourth century, may even go back to the Bible, but it peaked his head, known as the Donatist controversy between a group called the Donatists and Saint Augustine in the fourth century. This group of people who were debating about who should be a part. Of the visible church, should unbelievers, those who um, are not living repented life, should they be able to be members and be part of the church? That was one side. That was Augustine. The other side, the Donatists, said no, the church should be only made up of pure believers, those who are claiming to be Christians. Uh, today we see a controversy like that, and we just kind of ask the question like this: Is it is it really a big deal? Is church membership really that important? Um, The controversy has come back up in our circles today. There's a church First Baptist Orlando who has begun allowing uh, members and even to be baptized those who are living unrepented lives, lives of sin. Uh, And their evangelism strategy is open, they've affirmed it and affirmed it again, is to allow those who are unbelievers, those who are not living the Christian life, who are not following Jesus, to be members, to serve, to be leaders in the church, And that this is the best way they believe that those people will become Christians. Well, uh, that is the Donatist controversy. It's raised its head again. There's another group in our circles that are saying, no, that's wrong. The church should be compromised of only believers who are living repented lives. Well, uh, and then there's another group that says, you know, if you have an opinion on this, you're being judgmental. Above all things, we're called to be loving. After all, God is love. So we should just love it, love. And so it doesn't really matter. This is not really that big a deal. Um, a similar controversy was, came up in the mid-1900s uh, over doctrine. Um, when Billy Graham, in 1950, when he went to Europe in England and led many evangelistic crusades, he allowed the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the highest Roman Catholic official in Europe, to pray the benediction at the end of his crusades. Is it really a big deal, though? Is there really that big a difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants? I mean, was the Reformation, was it really that important? Was it just really a misunderstanding? I mean, is doctrine, is theology, is it really that important? I mean, shouldn't we just love all? Uh, You know, after all, I mean, don't the Bible say not to judge? That's kind of the arguments we hear um, today. So how do we think about these things? Is it really that big a deal that T.D. Jakes does not believe in the orthodox view of the Trinity? Is that really a big deal? Is it really a big deal that um, the most popular songwriting, Bethel and Hillsong, that fills most churches today in America, their music, is it really a big deal that their pastor, Bill Johnson, doesn't believe in the full divinity of Jesus? Is it really that big a deal? I mean, we just need to love all. We can't judge. Who are we to cast judgment on such questions as these? We should just continue, right? We shouldn't cast such judgments. Well, friend, those issues are before us today. And um, I would encourage us to not have our own opinions on all the things I just mentioned. But we should go to the Word of God and see what the Bible has to say about such issues of truth and doctrine and theology. So with that being said, let us read the book of Jude this morning and uh, see what Jude, see what the Bible, see what the Holy Spirit, see what God has to tell us about these issues. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Right out of the gate, this book is written by the half-brother of Jesus, this letter. Uh, He says he's a brother of James. We know James was the half-brother of Jesus. And so was Jude if he was his brother. We know Jesus had four half-brothers. I say that. Uh, You understand what I mean. But Jude said here he's a bondservant. He's a slave of Jesus. That's his main relationship to our Lord and Savior. He says, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, And preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. He says, I wanted to write you a letter about the gospel. I wanted to sing Amazing Grace with you. He said, however, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend. That word means to fight, to strive. Today you mention a word like that. You're judging, you're judgmental, you're narrow, you're bigoted, but Jude doesn't care. He said, contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Uh Uh-oh, he didn't condemn somebody. Uh Uh-oh. Ungodly men, Uh uh-oh, now he's name-calling. Jude's going to get some hate mail for this letter. Who turned the grace of God into lewdness. And to deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what the word lewdness means? It means a sexual behavior that is despised. Um, Whoa, if that's not the cardinal sin of today, I don't know what is. You wonder why most people never read this letter or preach it. Verse 5, but I want to remind you though, once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved his people, some of your translations may have Jesus, we'll talk about that, who saved his people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. He said there were those who went under the blood of the Lamb. There were those who went across the Red Sea, were baptized, but they were destroyed. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode, he was reserved in everlasting chains and under darkness for the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, have given themselves over to, a, to, a, to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vigance of eternal fire. There's a debate today going around in the evangelical world, uh, not only the debate does rage if sexual, if homosexuality and lesbianism is a sin or if it's wrong. That's a debate going on. But now the debate has come closer to home. There are many closer to where we would stand as a church who are saying that yes, the act of homosexuality is wrong, but the desire is not sinful. Here it says they went after strange flesh. Sodom and Gomorrah, the people you remember the story. They wanted to have sexual relations. They were men with other men. They desired that. Here, that is sexual immorality. Here, that deserves judgment. Um, J.D. Greer, former president of SBC, can say all day long that homosexuality won't send, you to sen- uh, won't send you to hell, but he's wrong. It will send you to hell. Just as much as sexual immorality in a heterosexual way will lead you to hell, so will homosexuality. The desire is sinful in itself. That's what they had. It's strength. Romans 1 says they exchanged uh, the judgment of God as he allows people to exchange the natural desire that man and women have for the opposite sex. That's a God-given desire that God has given us. But they have exchanged that for desires men have for other men and women for other women. That is sinful, you see. There's the point. Verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries gives an example. Yet Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever you, they know naturally, like brood beasts, these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. They've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Why do most people not stand? Why do most churches waver here? Money. Greed. They want to fill the church full of people, but not be faithful to the Word of God. They fear men more than they fear God. We need churches who fear the Lord. We need pastors who fear the Lord. We need church members who fear the Lord more than they fear men. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feast. This is the Lord's Supper he's talking about here. The early church, apparently, when they had the Lord's Supper, it was a potluck dinner to go with it. And during it, before or after, they would also have the Lord's Supper with the whole church. And he says, when you gather to do this, they are spots. Some of your trans may have rocks. Like a ship going into the harbor. Unseen rocks that will damage and, and destroy and sink a ship. People who are practicing these things, who are part of the visible church. What are they? He says they are without fear. They serve only themselves. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the root. They're raging waves from the sea, foaming up in their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seven from Adam, prophesies about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. Uh-oh, he doesn't use that word again. <laughs> Somebody should have told you. And on to convict them of ungodly, among them are all of their ungodly deeds which they have commanded in an ungodly way. I don't know if you got the point yet. Ungodly is the point. And all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own flesh. And they mouth great swelling words. Why? Flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time. Hello, we're there. Who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourself up on the most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need Thee every hour. Father, we need You now for clarity. We need You now for understanding. Would Your Holy Spirit do what You sent Him to do to convict us of sin? Lord, start with me. Lord, would You speak from Your Word? Would You draw sinners unto Yourself? Those amongst us um, who are not Christians, those who uh, do not know you as Lord and Savior, God, would the gospel be clear to them today, I pray. or I pray they would repent and believe. Lord, to those visiting with us who are Christians but not members of this church, God, would you work in their lives? Would, you, um, would the gospel, would your word be clear? Would you convict them? Would you um, bring comfort where they need it? God, to the members at Mazel Baptist Church, uh, because of your word through your Holy Spirit, This morning, would we be better? Lord, would we be more conformed to the image of your Son? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So here, the, the point of this letter from Jude is to contend. It's to strive. It's to fight. For most Christians, when they heard the president of Ukraine say when the war began, when he said, I don't need a ride, I need guns. That was a foreign concept for most Christians. I mean, the church today has become so weak, so Um, uh, emasculated. It's become, where fighting, standing for the truth, is something that doesn't really concern itself anymore. We just want to be known as loving and non-judgmental. But don't you see here in the text, how many times does he use the word love and be loved? You see, fighting is not contrary to love. In fact, if you do love, I think what you would say, you would fight. If you love the faith, you will fight. One theologian said, "A a dog will bark when its master is attacked. You see, when our faith is attacked, we should fight. If you love Christ, if you love the gospel, if you love the word, if you love the church, when it's attacked or when something comes contrary to it, you will fight. And make no doubt about it, friends, what we fight is not the flesh. What we fight is not carnality. What we fight are ideas. What we fight are those anti-Christ, those things that are against Christ and his gospel, those things that would uh, deteriorate and defile the church. And no doubt, there are false teachers. But we are to try to save them, but we are in fact to write against them and speak against them. That's what Jude does here. Well, how do we do that? First, I believe to win a game, you've got to have good offense and good defense. And Jude believes the same thing. One, he, he starts out, we've got to know what we believe, church. We've got to know what we believe. And we need to recognize we're all called to fight. Who in the letter, who is Jude writing to? Is he writing to pastors? Is he writing to church leaders? Is he writing to college graduates, those who study theology and philosophy? No. He's writing to Christians. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a born-again child of God, he says, look in verse 1, to those who are called. He says the faith wants delivered in verse 3, to the saints. If you're a saint this morning, if you're called, what is the call of Jude? What is the call of God on your life? It is to fight. It is to contend. It is to strive for the truth. We are called. Well, what does it mean to be called? That's that's a good place to start in understanding the gospel, understanding what the faith is. What does it mean to be called? Does it mean to be um, called? Is that somewhat kind of like on social media, like when you get a a friend request on Facebook? I can't remember what Instagram and Snapchat, the college kids told me this week, I asked them. I can't forget. I don't remember what they said. Is it one of those things where you get invited to be a friend? Is that what the call of God is? I don't know. Let's let the Bible answer that. Jude knew the letters of Paul. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8 with me in your Bible, and let's understand the gospel better. Let's understand what this word called means. Now, we're about to go into the deep end, but it's okay. I'm going to hold your hand. In verse 28 of chapter 8 of Romans, we love this promise, Christians. He says, we know that all things work together for good, for those that love God, and to those that are called according to his purpose. That God is sovereign. He works all things together for his glory and our good. For who? Those that are called. What does it mean to be called? Well, Paul's going to define that. These are the ones that are called. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What does it mean to be foreknew? Um, God is omniscient. He does know all things. He does uh, before the world was created. Yes, we affirm that God knew everything was going to take place. He knows everything. But this word foreknew means to place love upon. It means before the world was created, he foreknew individuals. He placed his love upon individuals, certain people. Uh, The Bible word to know, uh, Adam knew Eve, you get the context there. God set his love like that. He foreknew people. Uh, he, He put his love upon people before the world was created. Well, who did he do that to? Those he predestined. He predestined those. So if you're a Christian this morning, you need to know that God foreknew you. That God predestined you? What did he predestine you for? Well, it says, to be conformed to the image of his son. I don't want to bust anybody's bubble here this morning. I didn't come for that. But it's good for you to know that the world is not about you. It's good for Chris Porter to know the world's not about him. It's really good. Watson Porter's having a hard time, my son, realizing the world's not about him. It's not. Who is it about? What is your Christian experience about, your Christian life? Is it about you? No. Sorry. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about His glory. It's, being, it's about being conformed to His image. That's what God's plan for you. His predestined plan for you, Christian. Ephesians 2, 8, we're saved by grace through faith. Right, we love that. Amen. Saved by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 10, for He has predestined good works for you to walk in. God has predestined good works for you to walk in, Christian. Be conformed to His image. What are those good works? Jude tell us one of those good works is to contend, to strive, to fight for the faith. And we'll, All right, let's keep going that he might be the um, um, firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Now, who are the called ones? Those who he predestined to be conformed. Those who he foreknew. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So question, is everyone in the world going to be saved? Jesus is very clear about that, isn't he? That actually only very few people in the world will be saved. Only a small percentage of people will go to heaven. Broad is the gate, uh, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Broad is the way, wide is the gate, but narrow is the path, and small is the g- gate that leads to righteousness, and there are few that find it. Right. So who does he predestine and foreknow? Those whom are saved, those who are justified. How do we know who those are? We do what we did yesterday. We do what we're called to do every day of our life, Christian. We present the gospel to every human being in the world. You see, we share the gospel with every person because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish. Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. No one comes to the Father but by the Son. We present the gospel to every creature, every human being. But those that are justified, those that come to faith and believe, those are the one he predestined, he foreknew. And and what does this word justify mean? This answers, this word justify is essential to understanding the gospel. What we are to contend for and fight for. Justification means to be made righteous. But you see, this is the great dilemma that the Bible answers. How does a good, holy God make righteous and declare righteous an evil, wicked, immoral people? He has to judge sin if he is a good and holy God. How then does he do that? How does he declare an evil people righteous without condemning them and judging them? The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross, who took the condemnation we deserve. He atoned for our sins on the cross. He is our substitute. That's how sinners are justified. He justified. He also glorified. You say, that's deep water. I understand. Turn with me to John chapter 6. The greatest teacher ever to live and alive today speaks on the same topic when he... in John chapter 6, when he fed thousands. In verse 35 of John 6, I kind of cheated. I had it marked, sorry. Thank you for bringing your Bibles to church. What an encouragement it is to hear the pages flipping, amen? Right. In verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. But I said to you, uh, I said that you have seen me and you do not believe. Here, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Who's going to repent and believe the gospel? Those whom the Father has given the sons, what Jesus said. And he is not going to lose one. And he says, all those that come to him, he's not going to cast them out. We share the gospel as a church and as Christians on this basis. That Jesus is able to save anyone to the uttermost. To those who come to him, who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. He will save them. We preach the gospel on that basis that he will cast out none that comes to him. But only ones that are going to come are the ones the Father has given him. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing. But raise it up. On the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 44, skip down. This clarifies No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. Who are the called? It's not a friend request on Facebook not an easy kind of thing. Those who call, those who, there's an external call that goes to everyone in the whole world. Everyone in this world has a responsibility to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Without such, they will be condemned to everlasting punishment by God. But who are those that will come? There's this internal effective call of God, and those are the ones whom the Father has given the Son. This morning, if you're a Christian, you need to rejoice over that. You need to rejoice over the fact that there's nothing you did that made you a Christian. (laughs) You won't get to heaven and say, I'm so glad I decided to be a Christian. You you, you won't be that. If you're a Christian, you'll get to heaven and say, thank God the Father called me. Thank God He redeemed me and gave me the new birth. And He will raise me up on the last day. you got to love it that He says that over and over again. He will raise us up. So who are the called? Those are the ones... Uh, that are called to contend for the faith. Go back to the book of Jude with me. So that's that. Well, what also, he says, the faith, you've got to understand the faith handed down once to the saints. Understand who, what the gospel is, what justification is. That's what we fight and contend for. But we also need to see the Trinitarian, Trinitarian nature of this letter. If you look in verse 20, the Trinity is all throughout this short letter. But in verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. How how do we do that? Praying in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. We, We baptize. There's a group of people out there that baptize only in the name of Jesus. We don't do that because we're Trinitarian. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like Christ commanded us to do in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 19. Build yourself up upon your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, speaking of the Father. There's the Father and the Spirit looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. I'm so burdened by this. The Trinity, uh, the doctrine that we are monotheists as Christians, we believe in one God. Amen? Amen? We believe in one God, but God is three persons. The person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, That's the doctrine of the Trinity that we confess. That's the foundation of our faith. I had a friend who goes to a larger church nearby and is telling me his mother-in-law, they went to church and the pastor preached on the Trinity. And this, his mother-in-law, who's been in church for over 40 years, made this comment. I'm so confused. My head hurts so much. I've never thought about the doctrine of the Trinity before. Christian, I want you to understand this. The doctrine of the Trinity is day number one for the Christian. You say, how can you say such a thing? What are you baptized into? You're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is not something you learn or should learn uh, 20 years down the road or 40 years down the road. It's day number one. Let me encourage you this. If you have never thought hardly or or thought about the doctrine of the Trinity, who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, uh, that what salvation is, let me encourage you to examine yourself to see if you are even in the faith. You see, what could probably or what could be a chance is that you're, you're Christian only simply that you know you're not Muslim, that you're not, um, you're not Buddhist, but you're just Christian by culture. You actually, you've never actually considered the doctrines of the Bible. The very foundations of the faith is this. What the gospel is, what salvation is, who God is, the Trinity, and who Christ is, our Lord and Savior. Do you understand if you miss it on any of those marks, you're not a Christian. Orthodox Christianity, if you do not confirm at least those three fundamental things, you're not a Christian. You see, to miss it in one of these errors makes you a Jehovah's Witness, makes you a Mormon. If you, this, what, makes them not pro, what, what makes them not Christian, what makes them cults, is they miss it in the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation. So, friend, have you considered the doctrines of the Bible? I would infer to you theology actually does matter. Doctrine actually does matter. That's what we stand on. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. We need to know what we believe. So that's the offense. We need to know. And you see the person of Christ here. I wish we had more time, but you see in verse... I think not missed the page. In, in verse 4, it speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ. And right at the end of verse 4, it talks about the only Lord God. Speaking of the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of your translations in verse 5. Okay, verse 5 is talking about in the Old Testament in Numbers 14. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Okay, some of your tra- says that the Lord. Okay, let me read verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord. Some of your translations have Jesus there. Because the Lord, in verse 4, is talking about Jesus. And Jude here is talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. You see, Jesus, John 1 tells us, uh, created the world. The world was created through Christ. Jesus Christ is eternal. Uh, Him, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equals, co-eternal in nature. And see, sometimes I hear the gospel presented like this, and I think it's error. Sometimes the gospel is presented that God the Father is wrath, full of wrath and anger against sin. And the Son is the person of the Trinity is full of grace and truth. And on the cross, He took the anger of, and wrath of the Father on the cross because He's full of grace and truth. That's not Trinitarian at all. Because we believe in one God. God is one. The wrath that Jesus Christ took on the cross was the wrath of the Father, the wrath of the Son, and the wrath of the Holy Spirit. He took His own wrath on the cross for us. You see, God the Father is full of grace and truth and anger against sin. The Son is the same and the Spirit is the same because they are the same essence. What does it say about these people in the Old Testament? They were destroyed. Who destroyed these people in the Old Testament? Jesus did. See, Jesus is full of love and grace and truth, but he's also full of anger and wrath against sin. Don't you see that? Here, that's what he's saying. This is the doctrine of Christ. This is what the church at Maysville, this is what we affirm about Jesus. And if you're a Christian, this is what you would affirm as well. So we got to know what we believe, church. Uh, so now we got to know what to look out for. How do we play defense? we got to play defense against false teachers. Well, let's notice a couple things. We need to first recognize their message, the message of the unbeliever. He says at the end of verse 4 that these are ungodly men. They turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of God into sin. They turn the grace of God into a license to sin. They preach a gospel that is forgiveness without repentance. They say you can be forgiven, all you gotta do is ask for forgiveness. Maybe what you gotta do is just go through this sacrament, go through this ordinance, go through this ceremony, and, you, and just it doesn't matter how you live necessarily. In fact, you may have now be able to live more sinful because of this. They preach the gospel. What do they reject? They reject the lordship of Christ. Uh, look at uh, in verse 8. Likewise, they are dreamers. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. Today, many gospel presentations leave out the necessity of, to repent of your sins and follow Christ. Today, if you think you can just simply ask for forgiveness and continue in your sin, you're wrong. What is the outcome of teaching this, sharing the gospel? Well, it's verse 5. You see, this kind of gospel presentation that says you can be forgiven of your sins, maybe if you just say a prayer, if you just ask for forgiveness, Jesus died for you, so just place your faith there. If that's all it is, that's half the gospel. You have to repent of your sins. Because the one who you're believing in is not just another person. He is a human, but he's God. He's Lord. And if you're a Christian, he's Lord of your life, you see. And someone to present a gospel, to you to believe a gospel, that you can just, Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord, that's not the full gospel. And what does it do? It leaves you in your sin. You may go through the waters of baptism. You may go through the confirmation of the membership class here at Maysville. But what will happen if you live in unrepented sin? You will die and be destroyed. You'll be judged and condemned. Ain't that what he said at the end of verse 5? Those who come out of Egypt, afterwards they were destroyed. Why? Because they did not believe. Friends, if you continue in sin, if you're a living Christian, confessing Christian, in sin that is unrepentant, if you're living a sinful lifestyle, let me, listen, listen if you hear nothing else, you can have no assurance of your salvation. How do you know a tree? By its fruit. So they preach a half gospel, and why do they do that? For greed, they do it in verse. The end of verse nine, (coughs) they go the heir of Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balaam in the Old Testament cursed Israel for money. That's what these. That's what these false teachers are doing. Uh, It it says at the end of verse 16, they do this to flatter people. Acts 20 verse 30, Paul warned that there will be men who speak perverse things that will rise up among you to draw away disciples after themselves. 1 Timothy chapter 4, you know the warning of Paul. That there will become a time when people do not endure sound doctrine. But they will acquire teachers according to their flesh to hear what their itching ears desire. It's what most of the American church is. People just wanting to hear what their itching ears, their flesh wants to hear. This is uh, the problem with these false teachers. Uh, you see their false doctrine, but you also see uh, their false gospel they present, but you also see their lifestyle. You can mark out false teachers. What is their lifestyle? They're ungodly. You see that word there in verse 4? For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for the condemnation. They are ungodly men. Down in verse fifteen, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all, ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken of. The word ungodly here um, is it, a compound word: man, alpha, uh, negative, uh, and and reverence. The word is their irrever- irreverent. You see what. Um, these false teachers and false teachers are not talking. They're not just living out in sin and, and promoting sin necessarily. Some are, but they're just irreverent irreverent to the things of God. You, you know this. It's not uncommon to see men wear hats. To churches in. it. It's not uncommon to. Um, I mean, just see how irreverent we treat it. Most church, most Christians, most churches treat this area where the church gathers to worship God. And I'm affirming that the church is the people, but the church is also the gathering. That's what church means to gather. The word means gathering. Most Christians don't see the gathering place of Christians. They see it as just the same as uh, some other place. The place of worship is no more, no longer reverent. Praying is no longer reverent. Um, Teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible is no longer reverent. Many churches just walk in and see what most of the members are wearing. Just see what most people are. How most pastors are, are dressed. Why? Because they see preaching and coming to church as a common thing. They don't see this as a sacred thing. They don't see the church as holy. They don't see worship as holy. They are irreverent. You see, what did I say earlier? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The church is uh, the pillar and ground of truth. We wonder while we live in a culture that doesn't treat the church with respect is because most Christians don't treat it with respect. We wonder why we live in a culture that doesn't respect marriage as defined in the scripture because the church doesn't see marriage as a holy thing. You see, we are the ground and pillar of truth. And how can we expect unbelievers to treat things as holy uh, if we treat things that are uh, holy as just common? Gender. We shouldn't point too many fingers at at the church at large, uh, or at the the culture at large, not understanding or counting holy gender, male and female, because since when does the church have we defined what is masculinity and femininity? Since when we have taught and defined what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman? We have not considered these things as holy and sacred, as ordained by God. How much more than can we expect the culture to do any of that? If the church won't do that. Marriage, same way. The church, uh, offices of the church, what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a deacon, who can be a pastor, who can be a deacon. If the church won't obey the word of God on these things, how can we expect the world in general to have respect for the church? Irreverence. False teachers are irreverent. They are ungodly. One of the things it says about these men, I want you to look in verse 8. Likewise, they are dreamers. They are dreamers. They are mystics. False teachers are mystics. Uh, At the end of verse 3, it says that we have received a faith which was once delivered to the saints. Listen. What we contend for and strive for is complete. The gospel, the word of God, doesn't need to be added to or taken away from it is complete what these false teachers in jude's day were doing they were having dreams and saying god spoke this to me they were adding to the revelation of god by saying they were receiving dreams from god they were mystics i see so much mysticism in our churches today the pentecostal movement has has affected the baptist churches more than we want to acknowledge why? Because we have become mystics, and here's what mystics do. It's what these you, you see. What Jude is saying. Jude is saying that the faith we contend for was delivered. It was given. It is complete, and it was given to you. Say these guys. they want to add to it. What did he uh, in verse 17? What did he want you to do? Remember the words of the apostles. Ephesians chapter two verse 20 says. Paul says Jesus is the cornerstone, and the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. Of the church we have in Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, verse 2 says God in earlier times spoke in different ways through different ways but at the end of times he has spoken through his son he has spoken he doesn't speak anymore hear me the Holy Spirit only speaks to people through the written Word of God we have become mystic today in this way Many of us affirm that God still speaks to people outside of the written, complete Word of God. Uh, Let me prove it. Jesus Calling, the most famous, the best-selling devotion in the world, especially in America. I believe Sarah Evans, not Sarah Evans, I don't remember, Sarah Young wrote that. Here's what she says in the introduction. She says, I know God speaks through His Word, but I want more. She said, this is how she wrote Jesus Calling. I sit down with a blank piece of paper, and whatever God said to me, I wrote down. Apparently, God is still speaking. This is popular. Prashrila Shire, her on TBN. I watched that in my free time just for fun. Um, She said, the first thing you have to understand to become a Christian is God still speaks to you if you allow Him. Friend, let me be clear. God speaks to you when you read the Bible.'" It is the word of God. The Holy Spirit does not speak apart from the written word of God. Does he guide and lead and give wisdom? A hundred percent, absolutely. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying God's word. God has spoken. It is delivered once for the saints. Here's one thing I hear and it gets me. You ever hear this about a church service? Oh, at that church service, I got to tell you about it. Oh, I got to tell you, it was so good. Man, we got up singing and it got so good. We just had an altar call. Preacher didn't even get to preach. He ain't got to preach for two weeks. Oh, so you're telling me God started to work apart from the Word of God, from the preaching of the Word of God? That's very interesting. You know what you call that? Emotionalism. You call that mysticism. Didn't expect to get to me. Amen's on that one. <clears throat> it's okay. It's the it's the it's the faith delivered once for all. It has been delivered. You see, if how how what do you do with God spoke to me? And if I say and believe this is God's word, if God spoke to you, I got to put that on the same plane I put this. Because if God spoke, God spoke. See, I have the objective word of God. I don't have to question whether or not God spoke here. I know He spoke. And the word tells me He has spoken. It is once for all delivered to the saints. Their message is that of mysticism. See, we have to know what we believe. Believe the word of God. Believe the gospel that is defined in the word of God. What do we need to know about these false teaching and false teachers? All throughout this letter, we need to understand that they are condemned. Just as those who are called were predestined foreknew, these people were prepared beforehand for judgment. Look look uh, into verse 5. They were destroyed because they did not... Believe the end of verse 6, the judgment of the great day. At the end of verse 7, they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. End of verse 11, they perished in rebellion. At the end of verse 13, they are reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. One of the things we need to be very careful with about false teaching and allowing false teaching into the church it's because those people are condemned and their followers are condemned. Right. We need to guard the faith. We have been entrusted with this word, Christian. You have been entrusted as a Christian with this Bible. And it is our responsibility to share it, to give it away, to share the gospel with every person. But it's also our, gar- our job to guard it, to keep it, to keep it pure, to keep the word of God as it is and has been delivered. To us. So how do we do that? Verse 20 is how we do it. He gives us instructions. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder. He tells us. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal. There's one imperative in these two. Keep yourself in the word of God. In the love of God, excuse me. That is the imperative right here. We, as Christians, are called to keep ourselves in the love of God. Well, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Christian, you have a responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God. You have to act. You have to do something to keep yourself in the love of God. What do you have to do? Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Study the Scripture. Know what the Bible says. Know what the Gospel says. So you can defend it. So you can share it. So you can disciple your family. So you can pass it on to the next generation and the next generation. We've been given this responsibility. Next week, we're starting a new Sunday school class. It's uh, the Foundations of the Faith. It's a systematic theology class. If you're interested, it's going to meet at 9.30 in Pastor Shane's office. love for you to be a part of that. It's what is the faith. It's what is the theology of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a part of that class. I'd highly encourage you to be a part of that class. But you need to be a part of a small group studying the Bible more than what you do in here. And let me say this, the main way that you will learn the Bible is not through your own personal study of it, okay? The main way you will and should learn the Bible is the preaching of your pastor. You should bring a notebook and a pencil and take notes, okay? The main way you will learn is when your pastor, when Pastor Shane returns next week and he preaches the word of God. I, I'm encouraged by this. I see so many people with pens and paper in here. Bring it. That's how you make Why? It's great for you to study your Bible on your own. So it's great. I encourage that. Personal Bible study. Amen. Thank God for the Reformation. Thank God uh, for um, Wycliffe that wanted to make sure every Christian had the Bible in his own language. He said, I want the plowboy to be able to read the Bible just as much as the priest. Amen. Thank God for that. That's good. But you will spend however many hours that you will during the week studying the Bible. Do you know how long Pastor Shane studies the Bible to preach it to you every week? It's a lot. And you will benefit most and learn most by his sermons and how he reads and studies the Bible. So you need to be here. Don't forsake this simply so you can hear the sermon, hear the word preached. You know, um, you've heard the saying, the mind is a wonderful thing to waste. (laughs) Many evangelical church think the mind is just a terrible thing. (laughs) The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The more you know about Him, the more you love Him. Why do we care here that the words we sing are biblical? Because they're teaching you something when you sing them. You see, what gives us true joy and true true worship, singing, when we're talking about that? It's the depth of the truth that we're singing about. That's what fosters that. We need to build ourselves up. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is nothing different but praying the Word of God. Uh, we need to pray in the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 6, 18. I encourage you to look at that later. We need to pray. Luther said, the Christian without prayer is like a person living without breathing. We need to be people of prayer. Our services are chalked with prayer because we know without prayer, without submitting to God, our church will fail. It is Him who must work. If anyone is to be saved, it is he who must save them. If the church is to be edified, it must be the Holy Spirit that does it. So we depend upon him. So must you, individual Christian. So must we as a church. We must also look for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. Christian, he says, look for the mercy of God into eternal life. You see, when the Lord returns, we will need his mercy then just as much as we do now. Just as much as we do now. Let me ask you this. Are you ready for the return of Christ? First to the Christian, to the member of Maisel Baptist Church. Member of Maisel Baptist Church, are you ready? Do you know the faith well enough? Have you studied it well enough? If Christ was to return, you say, I know what the gospel was. I took advantage of the word of God you gave me. I studied it. I learned it. I knew it so I can share it better, so I can share it and love you and love the world the way you've called me to. Or do you have to be honest and say, you know what? I, I really haven't took the faith, that's serious. I didn't think it was that big a deal. You didn't think it was that big a deal? What are you going to do when your child decides to become a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhist? Are you just going to say, it's not that big a deal? That belief will send them to hell. Amen. Amen. The truth does matter. For, long, for way too long, we've just sung ourselves asleep in church for emotionalism and a good show instead of standing and being the pillar of truth. That starts with you, Christian, a member of Mesa Baptist Church. Christian today, who, who's here in our presence, not a member of our church? You want to be a part of a church that desires to stand on the truth, preach the truth? Let me encourage you. If you're a Christian, you're called. God's calling on your life is to be a member of a local church. So you can be held accountable to believing this truth and sharing this truth. Let me encourage you in that. Non-Christian this morning, listening to this, I hope you've understood the gospel. That your sin has separated you from God. That in your sight you are not righteous. Because you are not righteous, that means you're wicked and sinful. And God's wrath is upon you. There's only one way to avert the wrath of God. And that is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ Jesus. And make Him Lord of your life. Repent of your sins. Follow Christ. Believe that He died on the cross for you. Was your substitute. Three days later, He rose from the dead. You have to be a Christian. You have to affirm the physical resurrection of Christ. You affirm those things? Are you persuaded that that is the truth, non-Christian? Are you persuaded by what I've just told you? Then the call in your life is to profess Christ as your Savior. The way we do that here at Maisel Baptist Church is we baptize. If you believe this truth, the first step in obeying this truth, if you're persuaded of it, is to follow Him in believer's baptism. If you're interested in being baptized, we want to talk to you about that. We want to walk through that with you. So that's the call this morning. Would you stand? I want to pray this morning as a hymn of invitation comes. Christian, maybe you want to mark this moment as a time of prayer at this altar and say, God, I, I need, I see that I do need to take my faith serious. And it's time for me to start studying, to know what the faith is, to make sure I'm on a solid foundation. I need to be in a Bible study. I need to be more part of this church that will hold me accountable and love me in this. Maybe you need to join this church for that reason. Unbeliever, you want to be baptized? Are you persuaded of the truth we spoke about this morning? Maybe you'll come. I'd love to receive you during this time. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, I pray during this time of invitation, God, that as we have heard your word, we've heard the letter of Jude, God, that we would respond in the way you've called us to. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.